0: We're going to open back up to chapter 13, start diving in a little bit. As we talked about this morning, we kind of skipped off the surface. We're going to try to get a little bit deeper this afternoon. I'm not promising too much, but I'm going to try. So as we left this morning, we were looking at what I said was the picture of the kingdom. And we started giving some just very big picture snapshots of what Christ says the kingdom is based off of the whole entirety of these parables those were that it was made up of the children of God and those who were not. That it encompasses the whole world and it's not secluded just to a people or a location. That there are those within the kingdom who are placed there by the devil and are the tares sown among the wheat. That there are those among the hearers of the word of the kingdom that don't have the hearts to understand and hear. The kingdom is an exponential growth kingdom. It can begin as a little thing, but grows to encompass much, and that the kingdom is a treasure to those who know it, hear it, and understand it. So those are just, like I said, some very big picture characteristics of the kingdom of God. And like we said this morning, again, we want to reiterate that the kingdom of God is 99% of the time talking about here. It's not talking about heaven. Again, when you go through those characteristics we just listed, you'd have to say, okay, that has to be here because you don't have sowing of tares amongst the wheat in heaven. Okay, so in heaven is a final glory separation. Okay, that's what Christ speaks of at the end of some of these parables that he is ending all things at a point, And when that point comes, he will separate the children of God from the wicked. And so you have that kind of separation happening here, not in eternal heaven you don't have tears in heaven so here we continue on looking at this and we're actually going to dive in hopefully this morning this afternoon to three of the parables as we talked about from the picture of the kingdom remember when we organize the parables we organize them into three sections out of matthew chapter 13 so there's one two three four five six seven eight technically nine parables mentioned in this But we organize the eight of them into three separate categories. The sower, weeds, and the net all fall under the picture of the kingdom category. The mustard seed and yeast falls under the growth category. And the treasure and the pearl falls under the treasure category. So we're going to try to open up the picture of the kingdom category today and just get a little little glimpse at what he was talking about. I do think it is important for us to go back and look at some of the teachings that Christ has already done on the kingdom of heaven while he's been preaching through Matthew. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, for instance, he will say this, "'For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven.'" Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Now, we hear in that phrase come up a lot. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have we cast out devils? And in thy name done many marvelous works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of the heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, These three examples he's already given, okay, are really important to hold on to as we enter into the parable teachings, okay? Because again, as we talked about, when Christ said he was going to teach in parables, he did it to be exclusive, okay? He did not do it to be greater inclusive. He did not do it to say, I'm going to help you out and bring you in. You're not understanding, so I'm going to make it easier for you. No, he says, as we saw this morning, he says in verse 11, it's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. I speak in parables because I want you to get this. I don't want them to get this. So as you go back through and you look like at Matthew chapter 5, and verse 20 there where he says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what was he speaking to? This is right after he has gone through. Blessed are the mo- those that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the uh, they that hunger. All these things. He's gone about lighting candles and letting your light shine. And he's talked about that I haven't come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to establish them. And he says... Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men to do so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes in to talk about judging, about hating your brother. Okay. And what we've talked about as we went through that section of Scripture was this. Christ is not saying, you better get more righteous or else. He's making a... I don't know if it would be an analogy or kind of throwing off on the Pharisees in this way. He's saying, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, as we have fast forward six or seven chapters, we know there was no righteousness in the Pharisees except self-righteousness, okay? And that's not a every Pharisee, okay? We know that there were a few that followed after him. And in fact, in Acts, you find that there were Pharisees who were believers in Christ in the church. But as the ones he addresses, and as he's addressing there in Matthew chapter 5, he's saying, your righteousness has to exceed that. Well, what would that mean? Well, that would mean that you actually have, number one, righteousness that's God-given, okay? And then number two, that righteousness will express itself through the actions that you do. As he said there in chapter 11 and 12, it is from a good tree that good fruit is produced. A wicked tree does not produce good fruit, Okay, so as he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, these are the people that draw nigh to me under their mouths and they talk things and they flatter, but they do not have a heart for me. Wicked tree produces wicked fruit, but they look nice. The Pharisees looked nice. They did a lot of religious stuff. They kept the law. They did these things, but he said, no, their heart was wrong in what they were doing and they actually produced wicked fruit. And he said, so in, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisee, which again is a, it's a, it's a oxymoron. It doesn't exist. Okay. Their righteous was a self-righteous one. Their righteous was a hypocritical one. Their righteousness was a fake one. It was in words. It was in false deeds, but it wasn't from a heart that knew and understood and did the word of God. So notice, though, that he says there is a tie-in with that. And this is what we're talking about. This is one of those things where it says there is no case that they will enter the kingdom of heaven, okay? And we discussed this this morning, that 99% of the time it's talking about here in this earth. And you say, well, how can you be in the kingdom but not be in the kingdom, okay? That the kingdom is described as being the whole world. God is the king of the entire kingdom, and this kingdom exists around the entire world. Well, how can you be in it and not in it and what we were discussing this morning was the same analogy that you have with countries being in the Roman Empire but there were citizens of Rome and then there were non-citizens of Rome both existing in the Roman Empire citizens obtained a greater benefit of certain class distinctions opportunities and things that the non-citizens never obtained so it's a case of being in the kingdom but not being in the kingdom The second example he gives there is not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my father, which is in heaven. I think this is so important to grasp as we're going forward in these parables, because there's so many of these parables that kind of get twisted and, you know, maneuvered around. And this is not a new teaching. This is these parables are not teaching a new concept. Jesus has been teaching this the whole time. And so he says, it's not just the verbal assent. It's not just saying, Lord, it's not even in this case, doing things, quote unquote, in his name. These people say they have prophesied in his name. They've cast out devils in his name. They've done many wonderful works in his name. You say, well, either A, they're lying or B, this really happened. Well, Jesus doesn't call them out on their lying. So you have to assume it really happened. So you say, well, but what then matters? I mean, obviously, they're doing these things in the name of God. Does that not count for something? Jesus no. said, no, because I never knew you. And actually, you work iniquity. Whoa, that's, that's some harsh criticism there, Jesus. You're taking these people who've done a lot of religious stuff, quote, unquote, in your name. And you're saying you're actually working iniquity. So then what Christ is saying is that it's not just doing the religious stuff that matters. It's doing the will of my father. Well, what was the will of the father in chapter 12 at the end when he was talking about his family, when he said, those who do the will of my father are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. What was the will of the father? It was to hear the word of God and to do it. So this is how Christ uses this as kind of a separation factor. He said, you will have those who say they follow me. They say they're believers in Jehovah. They say that they are religious. And in fact, they do a lot of religious stuff. But they're not doing the will of my father. They're not doing the word. They might hear it. They might hear it all the time. They might hear it. They might purposefully put themselves in places to hear it. But hearing it alone doesn't count. Doing a lot of other religious stuff doesn't count. Doing what the word of God says counts. So this is where he would get into loving your neighbor stuff. Well, the Pharisees were all about loving their neighbors in the context and to the degree in which they saw fit to do it. Okay, And they would claim, yeah, I've kept that law. I've done that commandment. I haven't transgressed that. He said, well, what about helping the Samaritan in the ditch? Oh, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. That would make me unclean. What about doing the love to your enemy? Well, I wouldn't do that. In fact, didn't the Old Testament say you should love your neighbor but hate your enemy? No, it actually didn't. Well, what about honoring your father and your mother? Oh, yeah, we do that. Well, except, you know, sometimes what we'll do is we'll take... The money we should be providing in support of our mother and our fathers. And what we'll do is we'll say, oh, I'm sorry, mom. I'm sorry, dad. I would support you, but I've already given that money to the temple. But it's for a good cause. It's a religious stuff I've done. Makes me look good. Gives me good self-righteousness. But as far as keeping what God had commanded me to do, yeah, well, maybe I didn't actually do that. I heard it. But I didn't do it. But I replaced it with my own stuff. My own religious stuff. And walked away from it going, man, what a good person I am. Lord, Lord. Haven't we done all these things in your name? Haven't we given all this money to your temple? Haven't we kept your commandments? I've never killed anyone, have you? I've done all this stuff in your name. Why am I not being honored? Because I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. Matthew chapter 8. When he heard it, he marveled, talking about the Roman soldier, who he says, I've not seen such a great faith, no, not in all of Israel. And he says that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, seems like a weird statement. What he talks about that is that there's going to be many who come and sit down in the kingdom. And he's using the great patriarchs of Israel. He's talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Okay? Man, that's who we were going to eat with, right? That's what the kingdom was all about. That's what the Jews longed for. We all go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The kingdom is prepared for us. We have the lineage. We have the religion. We have the stuff. And he says, no. He says, actually, you see this Roman centurion over here who has no connection to the kingdom whatsoever. There's no lineage. There's no right. There's no duty. There's nothing in him that you tie back and go, oh, yeah, child of Abraham right there. He says, this guy. He's going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? I have found faith in him that I have not found in all of Israel. He's going to come sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, many are going to come sit down from the east and the west. We talked this morning about the big tree that's going to have all the Gentile nations flow under it. From the east and the west, they're all going to come down and sit in the kingdom and have a dinner with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in fellowship through faith but there's going to be children of the kingdom. There's going to be Jews who were quote unquote children of the kingdom who have grown up in the heritage and the lineage with all the right religious stuff and they're going to be left outside. Say, well, how can that be? Because they don't have faith. They don't have faith. Well, where did they get that faith? Well, God gave them that faith. So what you're saying is that they were doing a lot of religious stuff, but they weren't doing it by faith. Exactly. In fact, in the in the uh, Hebrew letter and other places, he'll talk about they were hearing the Word of God, but it had no effect in them because it wasn't mixed with faith. It didn't ring true with them. It didn't have an effect with them. They heard the Word of God. They just didn't do it. Why? Because they don't have the capacity they don't have the faith. They don't have the will, okay? As it would say that I gave them both the will and the do, okay, of my good pleasure. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's not saying just specifically that without faithfulness, it's impossible to please him. Remember, belief and believing in God is is a product of faith. You cannot have that without faith. Faith is the thing, the evidence of things not seen. It is a God-given fruit of the Spirit that allows one to know God and to see God and to believe God and to do the will of God. And without it, it's impossible to do those things. So he says, there's going to be plenty of the children of Israel who are going to think I'm in because I'm part of that group. And he says, as he will tell you in Galatians, it's not the natural lineage of Abraham, but rather the faith lineage of Abraham that matters. It's not the circumcision of the flesh, the natural religious thing. It is the spiritual faith based religious thing that matters in the end. So, when we ask the question, why did Jesus teach this way? And we talked about this this morning. And in one very simple reason, he did teach this way because it was a fulfillment of a prophecy that was made about him. Now, again, I always talk, we kind of tell you it in this way. The scripture will say he spoke these things to fulfill the prophecy. Okay? The prophecy was made because he was going to speak those things. Okay? It's not like Jesus was coming up here going, okay, guys, I've got four more prophecies to fulfill here. And so, okay, so it says that I'm going to have vinegar. Hey, grab me some vinegar, guys, because i got to fulfill this prophecy to make it work. No, God made the prophecy because God knew what was going to happen, okay? So when God made this prophecy about speaking in parables, it wasn't like Jesus goes, well, I wouldn't normally do this, but I guess today i got to teach in parables because, I mean, God already said I had to do it but the writer is recounting the fact that he spoke in parables because it was prophesied he would speak in parables, okay? And he's giving a good tie in there to show you it was fulfilled. Jesus never let a prophecy down. Because if he did, then that would mean that God wasn't accurate in what he said was going to happen two or 3,000 <laughs> years ago. Well, that wouldn't work out very well, now would it? So th- he gives us this idea that it was to fulfill prophecy. And that's from Psalm chapter 78, where he'll say, give ear O my people to my law, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old that dark is just mysterious hidden, which we have heard and known. And our fathers have told us we will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. So when we were talking about why was he speaking in parables and what did these parables hold, listen to the descriptions that he says. They were dark sayings, they were hidden sayings, but they were to show the praises of the Lord, his strength, and his wonderful works that he hath done. So when we talk about these parables, there is some weighty, glorifying content within them. So we need to keep that in our lens as we're going through it. So as we kind of start, there is there is also there's the exclusionary you know, aspect of this that we were talking about. And even references the prophet Isaiah. Because Isaiah would say, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their heart, and hear with their eyes, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. So even Isaiah was prophesying about this people that he was speaking to. And he said, we're going to speak in parables because you don't have the ears to hear it, and you don't have the eyes to see it. And he even makes an interesting point that if they did, they would be healed and converted by it. Isn't that interesting? He'll say over in Mark, I think it is, in Mark, in reference to this same kind of, this same parable. or Actually, I think maybe it might be in Luke that he says it. In Luke, he'll say this. Now, we'll read the parable of the sower and the seed again. Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no depthness of earth or deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some in a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear? Let him hear. Now let me tell you what Luke Luke's account explains the parable as unto you. It is given. This is Luke chapter eight, verse 10 unto you. It is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which when they hear receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection." But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. In Matthew 12, he'll say that in the good ground, but he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it which also beareth fruit, and it bringeth forth some 100 and some 60 and some 30. Important thing to grab there because that understanding is a big word that starts coming up over and over again. So I didn't want to get too deep into that this this afternoon, but you see kind of this tie-in with the Scripture from Isaiah. Isaiah that Christ said that lest they should hear and be converted and be saved or be delivered or I should heal them. When Christ is recounting the same event in Luke, he says, lest they should hear, hear and believe and be saved. So there's this group of people who that is prevented in when you're talking about this. And this is, this is what we need to get into and what we need to talk about with this, these parables. Don't dive too deep in this parable And start trying to draw correlations or conclusions, okay? Because you'll end up getting confused. This is what we want to try to do from a little bit of an altitude view. When you look at these parables, like we talked about, that we are looking at what this snapshot of the kingdom is, the picture of the kingdom coming from the sower and the seed, the wheat and the tares, and the net. Remember, the net parable was one that said, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but the bad cast away. So shall it be in the end of the world. The angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth, the wheat and the tares. You have a kingdom, which was the world. You have it sown with wheat, which was the good seed, which was the children of God. And then in the nighttime, the devil comes and sows in the tares, which are the children of the devil. And then in the end, they wait for them all to grow up together and be full and producing their fruit together. And then in the end, the angels are sent to cut them all down and separate them apart. Well, you notice the wheat and the tares and the net are extremely similar. They're painting similar pictures. The parable of the sower and the seed is painting a similar picture as well. So that's why I classified them all together. These are a picture of the kingdom. So what we gather, what do we gather from this picture? Real quick. What do we gather from this picture? Much like what we said this morning, the kingdom of God is going to possess both children of God and non-children of God. Okay, And again, there's those who can enter in and there's those who can enjoy the blessings and there's those who are citizens, so to speak, and then there's those who are just cohabitating in the same space. If that makes it a little bit clearer. But you have them growing together. You have them living together in this world together, which is all described as the kingdom of God. So the picture we get of this kingdom inhabitants... ...is that there are those who are children of God and those who are not, and they're growing up together. You say, well, why would God allow that? Well, he gives us a little bit of a picture there. He gives us a little bit of a snapshot into his brain. Because there's, I'm allowing it to be so. Because there's going to come a day when I am going to set this right. Okay? Okay? There's going to come a day that I'm going to fix this. You start asking that, why did God allow this scenario with the kingdom here? He is revealing, if you think about it, the entire course of history through the entire existence of man in this one snapshot. Do we catch that? Because going all the way back to the garden, people have always asked, well, why would God put the tree there if God knew they were going to eat of it? And then why would God allow... This? Why would God allow this? Why would God, why would God, why would God, why would God? Throughout the entire course of history, people will say, well, if God's such a good God, why wouldn't he just take all the evil out of the world? If God was such a good God, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? If God was such a good God, why would he not take all the murderers and the thieves and the rapists and everything else out of this world? Why does he allow all these things to continue as they are? Well, in Matthew chapter twelve, you get a sneak peek. In Matthew chapter, thir- I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter thirteen, you get a sneak peek. In Matthew chapter thirteen, you get God talking to angels and saying, "The devil has corrupted what I had originally intended." Is that not a story we've heard before? Is that not a story we've heard before? The devil came into a perfect garden and corrupted what God had originally intended to be good. So then what was God's recourse for that? Why did God just allow things to go on if he knew it was so messed up? Why didn't he just fix it then? Why did he just snap his finger or sneeze or whatever he needed to do to just make all this right? Well, revealed to us in Matthew chapter 13, you get to see God's thoughts about the entire redemptive story that has gone on since Adam. The entire redemptive story that's gone on since Adam and Eve in the garden and God says there's going to come a fruit A seed from the woman that is going to correct all of this mess. Something that has been, this this redemptive story has been somewhat hidden, masked, and dark up until Matthew chapter 13. And in Matthew chapter 13, he gives you this beautiful picture, gives you a view into the Almighty's mindset. That doesn't happen all that much. That doesn't happen all that much. That doesn't happen very often where God says, Hey, you want to know what I'm going to do? You want to know what my plans are? You want to know how I'm going to get this? You want to know what I'm thinking at this moment? Most of the time you get statements like, My ways are higher than your ways. Deal with it. Okay? You know, if you're going to just be frank about how God speaks sometimes in the Old Testament, he'll say, my ways are higher than yours. My understanding is higher than yours. Why in the world do you think you could comprehend what I'm thinking? Deal with it. Your your point in life is not to understand what I want or what I'm doing. It's just to do it as I have commanded you to do it. And here he is feeling free to discuss with his disciples the thinking of God. And God's thought was, we're going to allow this to go on. We're going to allow this fruit to rise. We're going to allow the works of the devil to persist for a period of time. And then don't worry. I'm going to send my angels and they are going to collect what is due. And they are going to separate the unrighteous from the righteous. And the unrighteous will get their just due reward and punishment. And when that happens, the righteous will shine forth in their glory. I think it's such a beautiful picture that he gives about us. You know, sometimes we get kind of a... I don't know, we, it's an it's a, it's a interesting mindset that is here that you get this picture of drawing away the bad to allow the good to shine better. Do we see that? That you're taking away the evil, and when you do, the good is just going to explode. You know, we're talking about as being the light of the world. You know, sometimes that light gets really small in the picture of all the darkness around it. You know, you can take a light. And you can go down into, well, you can, I mean, you can put lights in the stars. You can put the lights of the stars, the lights of heaven that are so far away from us. And they do illuminate a vast amount of emptiness and darkness. You can take a candle though, and you can take it into a deep, deep cave. And yeah, it will illuminate dramatically in a cave when there's no other light source around it. But it doesn't illuminate at all. The darkness is still fairly overwhelming in those situations. But if you're able to peel some of that back, the light would shine all the greater. And here he's saying that in the end, when all this is wrapped up, you get to see this picture of the light coming out to its fullness, removed from any of the trappings of the evil around us. I think that's a beautiful picture for us, because if you think about how we struggle daily with the problems of our own selves and the world around us. And we think, well, God, if you could just make all of this stuff go away. If you could just take all the hurt, all the pain, all the problems, all the sorrow, all the misery away, I could just be happy That sometimes I feel like my light is just compressed by the darkness that is around me. And God is telling us from Matthew chapter 13, He's saying, there's going to be a day when that happens. There's going to be a day that it's not just that I take the darkness away from you. And you get to shine bright. But you get to stand by the billions of other candles that have been shining this whole time. And all the darkness is going to be taken away. And the light is going to be so fantastic. And surrounding and encompassing and engulfing. That all those miseries and problems that you have worried about for so many generations are going to be as nothing. In fact, even Paul would say that all of the problems in this world, all of these light afflictions are nothing to be compared with the glory that is found in Christ. Well, that word glory in and of itself carries the mental image of something that glows. Okay, Something that is glorious almost has its own light within it that just kind of radiates out. You know, we'll describe the sun as a glorious being, a glorious entity in the sky. It emits its own light. When you talk about the glorious things of man, like the, the cathedrals and the thrones and all these things, they, all, they, they have this ambiance, if you can use that word, about them. Well, the glory that we find in Christ, the glory we will see reflected in ourselves in that day when God wipes away every tear and takes all the darkness away. That's a beautiful picture. And again, you say, why is he teaching this, this to these people? Again, something that I wanted us to really grab. He is not, and I, and I use this phrase, and I don't know if it's if it makes sense or if it's the exact, uh, I guess, phrase that I want to use. It's... These things are educational, and they are observable, but they're not necessarily instructional, if I can say that. this is what I mean, okay? They're educational in that they're teaching you something. They're teaching you a condition and a state and an observable kind of truth, okay? They're not instructional in that these parables are not to teach you how to get to a point. Okay? So that's why they're even in the parable form. They're not here to go, if you do X plus Y, it will equal Z. And I say that because when you're looking at the parable in particular of the different soils, there's sometimes people will take this, and this is just, you know, it's not right or wrong again. We can argue and have debates and discuss this further if you wanted to. But in my observation with this parable, there's all this back and forth and trying to figure all this stuff out and making it everything and all this and about soil preparation and all these things. These are not instructional. He did not give this to tell you how to prepare your heart to better receive the word of God and produce fruit, okay? This is not an instructional parable. This is an educational, observational parable. Same thing with the wheat and the tares. Is that instructional? Is he teaching us something about how to live our lives? No, he's saying this is the reality you will see in the kingdom. There will be wheat and there will be tares, okay? And when he goes on to the net, he says, This is the snapshot. This is the observation. This is the educational moment. This is what you will see in the kingdom. The kingdom is this big net. It has gathered and will gather people of every variety. So it gathers Gentiles, Jews, black, white, Asian, all that. But more to the point of what he's teaching, it's going to gather both believers. And non-believers. And he said, in this net, you will have everyone together, much like the wheat and the tares. But in the end, and I love how you get these two descriptions. And think about it too, because you've got an agrarian and a, what it would be a fishing society. There's the agrarian and then the fishing society, whatever that's called. Aquatic, maybe that. Okay. You have an agrarian culture. They're all about grain and food and all this stuff. You also got a bunch of fishermen, half of which are apostles. And in both of these scenarios, he says, in the scenario with the net, you're going to have the fishermen, they're going to gather. I think it's kind of a little bit weird that he also calls his apostles fishers of men. But in the end, the angels are going to sit down, and they're going to chuck out the bad, and they're going to gather the good. The same picture that he's giving there. It's not instructional. He's not talking about how you go fish. He's not talking about how you kick out fish. In fact, if you notice in those examples, none of those involve men in an active sense, like we talked about this morning. Who separates the wheat and the tares? The angels under God's command, not the men. Who separates the fish? The angels under God's command, not men. It is not our responsibility. Just go ahead and breathe a sigh of relief on that. It's not our responsibility to figure out who's a wheat and who's a tares. Or a weed, whatever you want to call it. Or who's a good fish and who's a bad fish. So we establish that principle first. And then when you look at the sower and the seed, you see not an instructional parable to tell you how to prepare your soil. Not soul, but soil. Okay. But rather a snapshot into the response to the gospel. In the kingdom, you are going to see a variety of responses, is what he is saying. And he's saying there are three responses that do not produce fruit, and there is one response that will produce fruit. Now, again, there are people that will argue back and forth about which one of these people are children of God and which ones are not. I can tell you with assuredly there is one that is a child of God, and that is the one that produced fruit. Okay? I can tell you that with assurance. Now, we can debate about the other ones. You can say all of them were, two or three of them were. We can go back and forth about what it means to be sown in the heart or taken in the heart or joy over it or whatever you want to do. In all reality, I feel like that's a very moot point. Or as I heard recently, it's a very moo point. You know, because nobody cares, cares about cows. Cows moo. So it's a moo point. All right? It's a moot point. It doesn't matter. It's not instructional. We do not have control. As, as much as we want to kind of work this into some kind of instructional pattern, we are not the controllers of our heart. In the sense that it's described here. We do not make our hearts good soil to receive the word of God. God makes our hearts good soil to receive the word of God. That's what he's been talking about in this whole chapter. There are some it is given to, to hear and understand the word of God. And there are others who it is not. That's the theme that's been going on. That's why he says in Matthew chapter 12, my family are those that don't just hear it. But they do it. Well, what would that imply? That they heard it, they understood it, and they produced fruit. Okay? Therefore, it's those who do the will of God that he says are my brothers and sisters, not the ones that just hear it and then do a lot of religious stuff. Which is again what he's referencing back to in those sections of Matthew. When he says, You have said, Lord, Lord, but you have not done this you have not done the will of my father. You've heard You've done some religious stuff, but I've never known you. he say, Well, then who gets in? Well, it's the ones who do this do the actual things of faith. Like that Roman centurion. So he says. It's not about the soil and how you make your soil better or how you receive the word. This is not instructional. It is a snapshot in the kingdom. He is telling us that just like there are good seed and bad seed in the kingdom, there are going to be those who hear the word of God, do the word of God, and they produce fruit. And then there's going to be those who don't. Either because the cares and the riches of this world have choked it out, Which means their soil was not good soil. It was full of weeds and overgrowth. Or that their soil was stony. Again, the use of the word stony there is so important. Because when you go back to Ezekiel and he says, It is a hard and stony heart that I am changing to a heart of flesh. Then that's important for us to grab when we're looking at this. The stony heart does not receive the Word of God and understand it like He describes the heart that's the good soil. And then you have those who are caught by the wayside. And those are the most interesting ones. And the ones that I think fall into the category like the Pharisees and others who have heard, but they reject it. It's rejected to them. They don't have the heart. They're not even, it's an incidental thing that's going on. But all of these pictures are just giving us the idea that there's going to be a diversity of responses and there's going to be a diversity of people who make up the kingdom. But here is what the important cross-centered point out of all of this is. Is that the kingdom of God is managed, overseen, and executed by God. God is the king. God is the ruler. God is the delineator. God is the excluding-er. Okay, whatever you want, how do you make that work? He is the one that's in control. He's the one that chooses to say it by parables or not for his own sovereign electing purposes. He's the one that's in control of this. And he's the one that says, when my time has reached its fullness, I will fix all the problems. So that should be a great relief to us. Now, you don't have to fix all the problems. Now, you aren't the one that's responsible for making sure that the kingdom keeps lasting forever. God's got this. That's why he says the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Why? Because you're in control? No, because God's in control. Because God's the one that's got this. You may not understand it. And again, I would look at you and go, well, why is the devil snatching seeds out of people's hearts? And why are tares growing up with wheat? Why, God? Why would this? I thought this was supposed to be a perfect secluded place where only happy, good people can can come together and there's no problems and no issues and no anything to deal with and we just get to skip along to Jesus and everything's great. And he says, well, the reality is this. This is what the kingdom is. This is what the kingdom looks like. But this is what I want you to remember. I'm going to fix it in the end. I allow it to go on this way for my own purposes, for my own reasons. I'll give you a little hint at what's going to happen, but I may not explain all the details. But understand this. The one detail we grab home or we grab and we take home with us and we rejoice and we glorify him in is that he says one day I'm going to fix it. So all the worries and concerns that we have today, as bad as they are, as complicated as they are, as worrisome as they are. We hold on to that glorifying fact that God says, don't worry, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to take care of it. So may God bless us to kind of rest in that sweet knowledge this afternoon. That world, the world is complicated. The kingdom of God is complicated. But God said, I'm in control and I'm going to take care of it. May God bless us.